Well, it is great to be with you all this morning on the Lord's Day. I want to extend to you warm greetings from your friends at Second Presbyterian Church downtown Greenville. Um, also from Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, uh, GPTS. Um, check us out, if you would. Uh, we got lots of good stuff, lots of free content. I'm sure it will benefit you um, in your own lives as well. Well, let's give our attention now to the reading of God's holy word. And remember now as I read that this is God's word. This will be from 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. This is God's word. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the, Lord, the word of our Lord abides forever. Let's pray together. Dear God in heaven, we thank you uh, that you have given us this day to worship you. We thank you for the love that you have shown us and the grace that you have given us. And Lord, we pray that you would give us your grace this hour, that we would receive your word in faith, that your spirit would impress it upon our hearts, that Christ would be glorified, and that we would see the beauty of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen. During the summertime, when I'm not taking uh, lots of classes, uh, I work a part-time job where I, I clean swimming pools, and I service pool equipment. And the thing that I always do when I come to a pool first is I test the water for the level of chlorine that's in the pool. And chlorine is important because chlorine is the agent that keeps harmful algae and other contaminants out of the water. If you don't have, those, if you don't have algae in there, that means you have a good pool. Uh, but algae can make your summer not very fun. Oftentimes you can come to a pool and the water will be blue, you'll hear the equipment running, everything looks good, but the chlorine test will tell you a very different story. Even though the pool looks blue and it looks healthy, and by all outward appearances it looks good, if I don't test the water, I wouldn't know there's a problem. Well, the same is true for us spiritually. We live in a day where often church membership numbers the amount of money in a church bank account, the amount of influence that a certain pastor may have on social media and the broader world around us, the amount of success that a Christian can have, a church can have, can lead us to think that these churches, these pastors, whoever it may be, may know something about God, may have some higher experience of God than your average, ordinary, everyday Christian. And everything can look clean and blue on the outside. What's going on on the inside? How do we know? How do we know that they are spiritually healthy? How do we know that we ourselves are spiritually healthy? And how do we have assurance that our faith and our knowledge of Jesus Christ is true, even when we don't experience the same things as other professing Christians? Well, the Apostle John shared the same concern for his people in this text. In fact, the main purpose of this letter was to provide assurance to his own people during his day, that their faith was indeed true. And this was a result of a group of false teachers that snuck in that we call the Gnostics. 
And the problem was that these false teachers brought much confusion to John's people. And their followers of the Gnostics were increasing as the teaching became more and more popular, as we will see. And the Gnostics claimed to actually know God, while the average ordinary and day-to-day Christian was missing something. And they questioned the assurance that the Christians had of their knowledge of Jesus Christ. Well, to combat these false teachers, John offers a series of tests in the letter of 1 John. And our text specifically this morning is John's test of obedience. And so what we will know from this text this morning, this is our main takeaway, is that we must test our knowledge of Christ by our obedience to know that we abide in Christ. So I'll say that again. We must test our knowledge of Christ by our obedience to know that we abide in Christ. And to do so, we will consider this text under three headings this morning. And from verse 3, we will see that we must test our knowledge of Christ. And as we move into verse 4, our second heading will be that our obedience must show our knowledge of Christ. And then finally, from verses 5 through 6, we will see in our third and final heading that we must abide in Christ. Well, in our first, as we begin our first heading, it's pretty clear in the book of 1 John that the issue of knowledge is very important. And you can observe John's preoccupation with having knowledge by looking at verse 3. And the verb that we translate as to know is repeated twice in this verse. And anytime John uses repetition in his writings, it's always a key for you to, t- to tune in on what he's saying because he's trying to communicate something very important. But to know exactly what he is trying to communicate, we've got to need to step back into the historical context of when this letter was written. Well, when this epistle was written, the early church began to do battle with the rise of a heresy or false teaching that we call Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism comes from the Greek word for knowledge, and these Gnostics were nicknamed the knowing ones. And this particular false teaching or heresy grew out of the sort of the milieu of the Hellenistic world, Greek philosophy, but it joined itself very closely with Orthodox Christianity. And the Gnostics taught that the issue between God and man was not sin. They taught that the issue was ignorance. And salvation or enlightenment was through the acquisition of intellectual knowledge that allowed you to transcend higher and higher and higher into the spiritual realms as you broke through the ignorance of the material world and day-to-day ordinary life. Well, the main claim of the Gnostics that John is countering in our passage this morning is that they claim to possess a secret knowledge that the apostles themselves supposedly got from Christ, and this knowledge is not recorded in the Bible. And the Gnostics boasted that they were the ones who had this secret knowledge, that they were the ones that had a higher knowledge of God and could experience God in a way that the ordinary Christian in John's church could not. And the problem was that these false teachers were coming into the fellowship of God's people and then luring them out with these claims of secret knowledge and higher knowledge of God. They were persuading the ordinary Christian that they were lacking knowledge of God and needed to follow their teachings to actually truly know Jesus. And the problem with this was it was difficult for the Christians to whom John was writing because these Gnostics, when they looked like Christians, they talked like Christians, and by outward appearance, they checked all the boxes. 
But behind that outward appearance was a deadly false teaching that brings spiritual death to the soul. Just kind of like how when you go fishing on a Lake Hartwell and you bait your line with a lure that's designed to look like a little minnow or bait fish, and you know, you're enjoying your, your Saturday morning, you throw your line out there, and that largemouth bass that's sitting there under the water thinks that your little bait fish lure is a delectable morning snack. But what's under that lure? It's a hook. It's a hook that removes the bass from its safe underwater home and habitat and into the hands of the fishermen who's seeking to devour it for dinner. Well, similarly, the Gnostics were attractively luring out the Christians to bite their hook of false teaching. And don't we face the same situations today in our experience as Christians? How do you know someone's faith is true? But better yet, how do you know that your own faith, your own knowledge of Christ is true? And what grounds do you and I have to be confident in our faith and knowledge of Christ? And how do we know that we haven't taken the bite out of the hook of false teaching? Well, John tells us that if you want to know if your faith is true, you must test your knowledge of Christ. If you look back at verse 3 with me, where he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him. And what John establishes here in verse 3 is that there is a principle, there is a standard, or a test that you can use to measure your knowledge of Jesus. That it's possible for you to know, that you may know that your knowledge of Christ is true, that you do have fellowship with God. Well, in God's grace to us, he gives his people not only the gift of faith, as we learned from Romans 3, but God also gives us assurance of that faith. And he does not leave us to wonder where we stand with him after he has brought you to faith. But now that does not mean that you won't always feel the full comfort of this assurance. That's why I love what the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 28, paragraph 4, on this doctrine of assurance of believers says, that the assurance of believers may in diverse ways be shaken, diminished, and intermittent. And now, if you have followed Christ for some time, you know this to be true. And maybe today you were here struggling with some sort of sin. Maybe you've been trying to kick something that you're just not able to. Or maybe you have some sort of trial. Maybe your finances are in jeopardy. Maybe your health is failing. Maybe your marriage is on the rocks. And oftentimes we have this idealized picture of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And we think that our lives are going to be perfect and they're going to be well-ordered and things are going to be going smoothly. But oftentimes, no, that's not the case. And because of these things, we can doubt our standing with God and ask ourselves the question, am I really saved? And now sometimes God allows our assurance to be shaken as he disciplines us as his children to come back to him. But God never leaves us completely without assurance. If we seek him, we test ourselves, we come to him by faith, we can know. And that's simply because that the Holy Spirit does not regenerate our cold hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. And the Son did not come down from heaven, step off the throne of glory, to accomplish your salvation by taking on your nature, your likeness, to live and die perfectly for you, so that God the Father would adopt you as a beloved son or daughter into the family of the Most High God, and just leave you guessing the rest of your life where you stand with Him. So be assured, 
Be assured if you're here struggling that you can know. You can know that God has set His seal on you if you would test yourself. But what exactly is entailed in the test that John gives us to know? Well, if you look back at the end of verse 3, he says, if we keep His commandments. In other words, John says you can have assurance if you test yourself by your obedience to His commandments. And just as you need to test the water of a pool to make sure there's no chlorine to have assurance that the water is good, John says you need to test your obedience. And that will be our focus as we move into our second heading to verse 4, that our obedience must show our knowledge of Christ. And to know if really someone knows their stuff, they must be able to practically show it. Well, similarly, to know if a Christian really knows Jesus and understand what it means to believe in his name, what it means to truly come to faith in God, a Christian will, as John says, keep his commandments. And this is because obedience to the commands of Christ demonstrates that we know him. And in the Bible, and especially in 1 John, in knowledge of God is not just intellectual, but it's also practical. And to know God rightly is to obey God faithfully. We need to ask the question of what does obedience mean in this text? Well, we know very clearly what John is not saying obedience is. If you back up to chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, we know that obedience is not sinless perfection to God's law. We know that we're not perfect. But John says in verse, chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And this is verse 10. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. But John's very clear that if we think that we can sinlessly obey and follow God, that we're actually making God out to be a liar. And so we know what obedience is not. But here's what he's saying. This is what obedience means to John in this text. Having the continual desire for and growth in Christ-likeness by the Holy Spirit. And Christ-likeness simply means love for God, love for God's Word, the desire to do God's will, and love your neighbor as yourself. And is that not exactly what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, when he's questioned by a lawyer on what the greatest commandment is? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's obedience. And that power to have the desire for and to grow in Christ-likeness, as we said, is a result of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. And that's what theologians call the act of progressive sanctification, being renewed by the Holy Spirit from the inside out into the image of Christ. And that's what's going on here in this text. And because Jesus loved God and desired to do his Father's will, so will his people. Because that's what the Holy Spirit's doing. He's bringing us to unite us to Christ in sanctification. And what John's point is, is that if you know Christ, sanctification is not an option. If you know Christ, obedience is an unavoidable and necessary implication of knowing Jesus. And I love what my systematic theology professor said this year, uh, where he says, true theology means to live by the truth. And that right doctrine also means right living. But that was precisely the error of the Gnostics. They claimed, as John recalls for us in verse 4, I know him, but they did not obey him. And they thought that they could claim to know the righteous God 
but yet live in the practice of continual unrighteousness. And because this contradiction between their claim of knowing Christ and their unrighteous lifestyle, if you look back at verse 4, John calls this one a liar and that the truth is not in him. And that, my friends, is a slam dunk, so to speak, on one of the major errors in, our, in the church today of antinomianism. And antinomianism is simply the Greek words anti and nomos, so it means against and law, right? So you have against the law. And antinomians will profess that we've been cleansed by the blood of Christ apart from any works, apart from any obedience to the law. If that's all God has brought us to faith, why do we need it after we have come to faith? Well, John has pretty strong words for such a belief. Because as he says, disobedience to the words of Christ, to growing of the power of the Holy Spirit, disobedience to the righteous word of God makes you a liar. And that's where we need to examine our own hearts here. And be warned by this text, because the very thing John is condemning, is condemning here characterizes much of what we see around us in the church today, and especially in our Bible Belt Southern culture. And just because you come to church every Sunday or attended a church regularly for potentially many years does not prove that you truly know God. Just because when you were in fifth grade at summer camp, walk down the aisle and raise your hand and pray a prayer for Jesus coming to your heart doesn't mean or doesn't prove that you truly know God. Or maybe just because you were baptized as a covenant child in a, in a Reformed church does not prove that you know the Lord. And just because we can look like a Christian from the outside doesn't mean we are a Christian on the inside. And if the message of the Apostle John here causes your heart to be disturbed, examine yourself. Take his test. And if the characterization of the liar that he gives potentially describes you, take the test. Don't be afraid to. If you take the test and you find yourself wanting, repent and turn to Christ, that he will wash you clean, that he would give you his spirit, that he would empower you to walk in the ways of the Lord. And here's the reality in the bottom line, that if we don't examine ourselves now, we will be examined one day. And it's better, I would say, to take this test now than to take it in front of the one that we claim to know and be found a liar on that day. Well, from verses 3 through 4, we just saw that to have true assurance, you must have the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we follow John's argument to observe that the true knowledge of Jesus is not just intellectual, but it's also practical. Because true knowledge of Jesus leads to obedience. But there is another major component to having the true knowledge of Jesus Christ that we haven't touched yet. And that is simply that not only must you know Christ intellectually and practically, you must know him relationally. You must know him personally. You must know his love in your heart and your soul. You must have a relationship with Christ. And that's exactly what we're going to see under our third heading from verses 5 through 6. And why to have true assurance... You must know Christ by, as John says, being in Christ. Or to put it another way, you must abide in Christ. As we begin to unpack what exactly it means to abide in Christ, we need to go ahead and jump ahead to the last half of verse 5 in this text, 
where he says, by this we may know that we are in him. And this is not the introduction of a new test, but rather it's the restatement of the same test that John already gave us back in verse 3, and all he did was just repackaged it in a different way for us to understand. And John's focus in this test is, again, having the right knowledge of God. But having the knowledge of God specifically in a personal and relational way. And putting the two and two together, we can infer that what John is saying that is to know Christ, we must be in Christ. And what verse 6 makes it, puts it a little bit differently, where he says, whoever says he abides in him. And simply put that to abide and be in communicates the same idea. Personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In verse 6, the word that is translated as abides comes from the Greek word that simply just means to remain. And in our text, this word is given to us in the present active indicative. It simply means ongoing, continual remaining. But ongoing, continual remaining in deep, intimate, and personal love with God through Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit. That's what it means to abide for us. We think here of Psalm 91. That picture of abiding in the shadow of the Almighty that we're given. That beautiful psalm that has brought comfort to, I'm sure, many of us here. That's what's going on in this text. That's what abiding means. But abiding does not just mean that we need to be in Christ. It also means that He has to be in us. And for Christ to be in us, the Holy Spirit must work in our hearts to make him known in our hearts in this deep and personal way. And that's why John says, if you flip ahead to chapter 4, and what John says later in this letter in chapter 4, verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And the Holy Spirit joins us to Christ by uniting us to him in faith. And it's the Spirit of God that abides in us and then propels our hearts to desire and thirst after Christ. And the Spirit moves us out of a true and genuine love for God in Jesus Christ. And this is what John means by saying in verse 5, In Him truly the love of God is perfected. And so every time you taste the love that God has for you, when you know in your soul that you have a Father in heaven that knows you with all of your faults, all your weaknesses, all the sin, He knows you from the inside out perfectly. Even before you loved Him, He loved you. That He sent His Son to die for you in your place. That you would be made clean. That you would be brought into the family of God. That you would be presented holy and blameless to God the Father by the blood of Christ. And that you've been given this gift of eternal life by believing in the name of Jesus Christ. And when that love comes back into your heart and brings you that reassurance of God's love for you, that's God's love being perfected in your heart. That's what it means to know God's love, that God has made his love known to you by sending his son to bring you back to himself. And as John says in chapter 4 of this letter again, he says, We love because He first loved us. 
So my question is, how could we walk in any other way but in the same way in which Christ walked, if that's the love that you know in your heart? How could the effects in our life have to do with anything but seeking to glorify and magnify Christ in all that we do, if that love is within our hearts? And that is why John says in verse 6, that whoever says he abides in him must be tested with the same test of obedience that we already saw as the one who claimed that they have come to know him back in verse 4. And as the one who claims to have knowledge of God must be tested with obedience to God's commands, so must the claim of having a personal relationship with Jesus be tested with the same obedience to his word. And this claim to abide in Christ must be tested because abiding necessarily implicates imitation of Christ. And that's why in verse 6 he says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And perhaps a more literal translation of ought in our text would be under obligation. That's the notion of being constrained under given circumstances to perform or act in a certain manner. And in this case, the circumstances are the claim that someone says to abide in Christ, to have relationship with Christ. Well, if we claim to have relationship with Christ, we are under obligation, as John says, to walk in the same way in which he walked. Or to put it another way, as the Apostle Paul says, imitate Christ. Now, imitating Christ does not mean being able to go and walk on water or turn water into wine or um, feed a crowd of 5,000 people with only a few pieces of bread and some fish. But as we already said with our definition of obedience, to walk in the same way that Christ walked brings us back to this. Love God, love his word, desire to do God's will with our lives, and to love and put others before yourself. That's all connected here. And that's simply because the deep and intimate knowledge of God through personal relationship with Christ means that you commune and have fellowship in the deepest way possible with the holy and righteous God. So that's a major contradiction to claim to have personal relationship with God in Christ than to walk in a way that's different from how he walked. And again, that was the claim of the proto-gnostics that were bringing confusion to John's people, claiming to have a loving and personal relationship with Jesus must be reflected in our lifestyles. It must be reflected in our practices. It must be reflected in who we are in the world. And friends, I wonder if that's you. I urge you to test yourself to see that this claim to have relationship with Christ, is that reflected in our lives? Do we know Christ's love by walking in the same way that he walked? That's also how we have true assurance that you do have a true and real personal relationship with Christ. Because you desire to be like him and desire to obey him in all that you do. And be comforted that if you can personally attest to what John is teaching here, you can be assured that your faith is true. And if your faith is true, what does that mean? That means that eternal life is yours. All the promises of God, all those wonderful blessings that we read about in the Psalms, all those wonderful promises that are given to us in the prophets, those promises that Jeremiah 31 gives us, the new covenant, being made clean by the Spirit, walking in the power of God, having God's law written on our hearts, 
with the assurance that death will have no grip over us, that death will have no hold over you, that though you may suffer and be tried in this life, you may struggle, but on the other side of the struggle is the blessing of eternal life in the presence of God. If you take this test and can attest to what John is teaching here, that's yours. That's your knowledge of Christ. That means you do know him. And the truth is in you. And that's where your confidence comes from. But as we see in this text, that assurance truly is important. It's important to know that your faith is true and you actually know the Lord Jesus rightly. And just as I needed to test the, every pool, I would come clean. Even though the water looked clean in the pool, we need to test our knowledge of Christ to know that our hearts are healthy. It's by testing ourselves that we may know that we do know him. And John gives us in our text the test of obedience. And what we learned is that our knowledge of Christ is shown by our obedience. And just as it was for the Apostle John, we need to test ourselves in light of the reality of false professors of faith in our midst. And all Christians need to not just test yourself once, but continually test yourself. Continually examine to see, your, see if you are in the faith. Look at your obedience. Look at your lifestyle of living. Look at the practice of your life to know if your knowledge of God is true. But we also observe that our knowledge of Christ must also not just be a practical knowledge, but it must be a personal knowledge. It must be a relational knowledge through abiding in Christ and through Christ abiding in you. And that means that the love of God, as John says in verse 5, is being perfected in us, and that we abide in him, that he is in us. And whoever claims to have that relationship must have that claim tested by obedience as well. But if we examine ourselves by our obedience and find that we are keeping his commandments and our lives are imitating Christ, be humble because that demonstrates that God's love is in you. God has redeemed you. The promises of eternal life, the gift of being made right with God through Jesus Christ, being cleansed by his blood, all those things are yours. So be humble that God's love is working in your heart. And may you examine yourself to test the truthfulness of your profession of Christ. Check yourself, examine yourself. Make it your duty to go to the Lord in prayer, to examine yourself by his word, to see where your faults are, to see where you need to ask God's spirit to help reform. Examine yourself. Ask the spirit to press upon your heart the love of God the Father for you in his son by the spirit that makes you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Dear God in heaven, I want to thank you for your word this morning. I want to thank you for the blessing that you give us of your assurance that we may truly know you, that you have given us your spirit, that Christ abides in us and we in him. Lord, I pray that you would impress that upon the hearts of all these precious saints here this morning and be with us as we go throughout this week and we may walk in the ways of Christ. And we ask this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.